And as we watch Abraham navigate what all those interactions are like, we're going to see that sometimes he does really well and sometimes a little less well. And what you're going to notice is how God actually engages him both in the times that he does well and the times that he doesn't. And obviously then, our hope is that we're going to see better how God will interact with us because there are times when we navigate life faithfully and then times when we navigate life a little less well. Let me think first by way of introduction with you about how you go about living out your faith in this larger world. And if you have lived long enough to watch it happen, or if you've studied it, you realize that there's a shift that's taken place in our country probably since like the midpoint of last century on to now. In that not too distant past, faith, religion, that was seen as something that was relatively positive. It was a good thing for you as an individual. At the very least, it helped socialize you. It taught you a basic morality. And that would help you to become a good, decent citizen. And so in our society, there was some general assent that an element of religion, an element of faith, some symbol, some reference to it, some extension of it, that was a good thing. It was good to embed that in the way that we governed our society. Something of faith belonged in the public sphere because it made you a better person. It, it contributed to the public good. That perception has shifted. As you think more about the latter part of last century, religion moved from being a positive element in our society to one that was more tolerated. So it didn't say anything badly about you, but it didn't say anything good about you either. It was okay if that was what you wanted to do. We're in a phase now where as you listen to the news, as you read, you discover that religion, faith, they are looked at more and more skeptically, a little with suspicion, things that tend to contribute to so social dysfunction. And so increasingly, you hear things like, if you have some kind of faith, well, you can hold those beliefs and you can deal with that practice in private, but that's not welcome in the public sphere. Now, as you think about that and you, as you try to engage with those kinds of things, what are your options of living out your faith when your surrounding society doesn't hold your faith and how it, when it moves in directions that are actually making it harder for you to live out your convictions? Your convictions of what is right and what is wrong. Your convictions of what a just society ought to do and what a just society ought not to do. Of what activities we should tolerate, of which activities we should not tolerate. Okay, here's option one. You essentially agree with your society and you hide your beliefs. You teach them to your children, you gather them and, and discuss them with your friends, but you relegate them to the private sectors of your life. You don't allow your convictions to influence what you do during the day. You really don't allow it to influence how you engage with other people. And so you keep quiet at school, you keep quiet at work, in your professional organizations, in your hobbies and the other things that you're involved in. Option two, you assimilate with the larger society. You modify your beliefs in greater conformity with your society. And when, you, when this is your chosen option, you get really good at sensing where those tension points are between what you believe is right and what your society currently thinks is right. And you figure out how to make compromises so that you are more in line with what everyone around you is thinking. Option three, a little more aggressive, you fight back. You refuse to go quietly, you decide to fight power with power, and you tackle the tensions head on. And if you do that in this country, what does it mean? You gather voting blocks of other people to try to take back the decision-making apparatus in the culture. 
all three of those are very popular options. You may have found yourself trying one or maybe all three of them at some point. There is a fourth option that's much harder. And the fourth option is that you seek to be a blessing to your society. I'm going to hang out there and not define blessing for the moment. You seek to be a blessing to your society even when they are antagonistic to your own core beliefs. And if you think about that for a moment, you realize actually that's what God does because he has a very similar situation to yours, although his is much more complex. God lives in a world responding to not one society that disagrees with him, but to multiple societies at any given point throughout time in history. Societies that have not embraced him, that have sought to erase him, not simply from the public sphere, but also from the private one as well. And so God has to engage societies that have promoted philosophies, promoted activities that he's against, Prom uh, that, that, that have enacted laws and normalized things that he hates. And what makes it really worse for God is that he plans something entirely different. Now, that's important for us because that reality of God being rejected in his own world, that forms the background to the life of Abraham. If you read through Genesis 1 to 12, they are not you know, one-off stories that you think, okay, these are cute Sunday school stories. Instead, they're supposed to be a package, and they are the introduction to what's really important in the book of Genesis, which is what does this life of redemption look like that God starts with Abraham? So let me just run through these first several chapters really quickly. In Genesis 1 and 2, God lays out his purpose for creation in general. And he says that his purpose for his creatures, and especially for humanity, is one of blessing. And so what you see there in those early chapters of Genesis is every time that God makes something, he steps back from it and he assesses it. And he says, it's good. It 100% completely, entirely fits into the package of what he's trying to do uh, and rounds out creation. And so each part fits into this space that nothing else can take. And as this whole package comes together, what are you seeing? You're seeing God's values, the things that are important to him being expressed visibly. And you're starting to see this visible picture of the invisible God, a picture of the glory of God. And so as you look at what God is making, you discover that God is just bursting with life bursting with creativity, bursting with uniqueness, but bursting with harmony, bursting with beauty. And what God is doing there is he's showing you, this is who I am. But God does more than simply create, more than simply assess. He also blesses. And he comes to various parts of his creation. He blesses the sea creatures, blesses the air creatures. He blesses humanity, those who are to govern all the rest of the creatures and take care of the world. And each time that he speaks that word of blessing, he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what's he saying there when he says, be fruitful and multiply? He's saying, make more of yourselves. Multiply, take the goodness that you already have as you fit into my world and extend that exponentially. And as they extend that exponentially and, and create more and more and more of them, you're going to see greater levels of complexity in this God. You're going to see greater levels of abundance in him. Or at least that's what you're supposed to see. You all know the story, Genesis 3. Sin enters into the picture, and it ruins all of creation. And it does so so that nothing works right any longer. Each piece is now broken individually, and none of the pieces all fit together in a coherent whole. 
You can see that in the inanimate creation. The forces of nature, they don't serve God's creatures. Now they threaten us. And you saw that with Dorian this last week. It's just devastated the Bahamas and threatened the mainland here in the U.S. Or you think about the species. They are not defined by harmony and, and working together. Instead, they're defined by survival of the fittest. Suffering enters into the world. Accidents, illness, death, those are now a normal part of life. And it's not just that you are exposed to a world of suffering, a suffering out there, but now you actually have to deal with sin. And sin comes and enters into us, and it ruins all of the good stuff that God built into us. It does that in you. Sin undermines your best gifts and your talents. It chips away at every relationship that you've ever had. And it's so deep inside of us, it, it, it's the new normal. It's just instinctive. You have never had to take a little child and teach them to say no to their parents. They come knowing how to do that. They know how to lie. They know how to be selfish. It's now part of our DNA. It's innate to who we are as human beings. And as you read chapters 4 to 11, I'm going to actually urge you to do that. This week, you know, read them as a, as a chunk, as a whole. It won't take you very long. As you read chapters 4 to 11, you're going to discover that they detail how situation here on this planet goes from bad to worse. You start to see sin spread across the globe. So instead of multiplying and filling the earth with the glory of God, now it's filled with sin. You watch sin as it deeps, delves deeper into each one of us. You start to see that the blame shifting of chapter 3, it gives way to murder, and you discover that personal dysfunction has no limits. God will come back in Genesis 6, and he'll talk about how evil is so deeply rooted in us that every inclination of the thoughts of our heart, the intentions of our heart, is only evil all the time. Even after the judgment of the flood, humans can't help but dishonor each other. And instead of spreading the glory of God across the planet, in chapter 11, you watch humanity try to gather itself in one place, the Tower of Babel, not to proclaim a name for God, but to proclaim a name for themselves. You discover in those early chapters that everything humans do is affected now by sin because sin affects every part of us. And what that does is it starts to erase not completely, not fully, but it starts to erase God's glory. It's harder to see now. You have to remember that humans are not simply talking land mammals. We're made, as Pastor Luke was saying, in the image of God. In other words, when you look left and right right now, that should give you the best, most clearest representation of who God is. Everything that we say, everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we feel is supposed to give you a picture of what God would say and what God would do and what God would think and feel if he were here instead. But when sin enters into that world, you no longer see God as accurately as you once did. That image is now twisted. It's distorted. It's marred. And as you read through those early chapters, you discover just how stubborn that distortion is. You start reading through them, you watch what God does, and you discover that all the things that he does don't get rid of sin. And so God banishes Cain in chapter 4, but that doesn't keep sin away from other human beings. He judges the earth with a flood in chapters 7 and 8, but sin rides out the storm inside the ark. He punishes Ham for dishonoring his father in chapter 9, but that doesn't contain sin. God disperses humanity into language groups in chapter 11. That doesn't water down or 
eliminate sin either. Instead, now that sin and now that evil have entered into this world, they've taken the glory, the blessing of Genesis 1 and 2, and turned it into a tragedy. Now, that's the situation that God has to engage. What are his options? Option one, God could have decided, you know what, this was just a really bad idea. An experiment that went really wrong. The only way to get rid of sin is to destroy the sin carriers and want to wipe out humanity. Sounds like a valid solution, but if you think about it, what's that going to mean? That means that God is going to settle for a world that doesn't completely represent him. It's going to be to take this world that is supposed to help us see him and rip the center of it out. All the rest of creation is going to feel the brokenness. There's going to be a not goodness then to the universe that God made. It's going to be bad for the creatures here on earth. It's going to be really bad for God. Because it means then that God would settle for second best. Which means that God would no longer be God. He would no longer be the perfect being that he is. So option two. God could have decided, you know what? We're just going to have to make the best of a bad situation. Ignore evil where we can put up with a broken world. It's not really any better than the first option. You could at least see the images of God, but you wouldn't see God's perfection in them. And so you would never really see kindness as kindness is supposed to be. You would never taste patience and gentleness that's anything like God's patience and gentleness. You wouldn't know true courage or bravery. You wouldn't know real beauty or goodness. You'd still be missing God, and his world would still be torn apart by sin. So God chooses door number three. He chooses to invest himself in this world to rescue humanity. And he chooses to do that even though humanity does not want to be rescued. It does not want to be redeemed. And God says, that's really what you need. It's really what's best for you. So I'm going to do that anyway. And one of the very important stages along that road of restoration is what God does in choosing Abraham. That's why we really want to spend some time with this. Now, First thing I want you to see, that's all intro, the first thing that I want you to see with Abraham is what kind of person God chooses in order to advance his restoration purposes on earth. This is a very big job, right? And if you have a big job, don't you want the most gifted, the most highly qualified person possible? You want somebody who doesn't simply hold promise, but you want somebody who's got a track record. You want somebody who has a good background, someone who's come from a good family, who's had a good upbringing, who went to a good school, who's been to several good companies. You want someone who not only had lots of opportunities, but who made the most of all of those opportunities. Someone who made good, strong decisions, who carried them out successfully. In short, you don't want Abraham, or Abram, as he's known early on in his life. See, Abram did not come from a family with a good reputation. Several hundred years after this, Joshua is going to remind Israel, who is Abram's descendants, of their family history. And he's going to tell the Israelites in Joshua 23, verse 2, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. And you think, what? They, they did what? We, we've descend, we're descended from people who served other gods. Joshua doesn't elaborate on who those other gods are. But the scholars have sort of teased things out. It seems like Abraham and his family 
were moon, wor moon god worshipers, the Akkadian moon god. Several scholars will note that the cities of Ur and Haran, the city where Terah led them after they left Ur, were believed to be important centers of the moon god cult. Or you take a look at all those names at the end of chapter 11, you think, why are all these names here? Well, as you start to tease out under what's underneath of the names, they also point back to worshiping the moon god. Abram's wife, Sarai, in, in, not in Hebrew, but is named after the moon god's consort. Abram's brother married a woman named Milcah, who's named after the moon god's daughter. Terah's name in Hebrew is related to the word for moon. You put all of that together, and the Old Testament professor, Bruce Waltke, says that this family, quote, is steeped in pagan idolatry. That is not an auspicious start for restoring a world that's infested with sin. It gets worse. The word from God to Abram, chapter 12, verse 1, is, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, here's my question. Where was Abram when he heard that word? And at first glance, you think, well, it's chapter 12. We were just told in chapter 11 that Terah died in Haran, so I'm assuming this is Haran. Actually, that doesn't work. Because once Terah died, Abram has no need to leave his father's house. There's no father's house to leave. More than that, if they're in Haran, Abram's already moved away from his kindred. It doesn't make any sense for God to say he should leave them. He says to Abram, you need to leave your country. Well, if you've emigrated to another place and you were old enough to be married when you emigrated and you're now an immigrant, would you call that new country your country? I mean, it's your adopted country, but do you think of that as your country, as home? And then think, no, where do you think of as home? It's the place that we left before we got here. For all those reasons, you start to realize that God told Abram in chapter 12, verse 1, to go to a land that he would show him when he was still in Ur. And if you go into the New Testament, you discover that's actually what the Israelites believed. One of the first deacons of the church, Stephen, is accused of blasphemies, hauled before the high priest to account for himself, and he begins his defense this way, Acts chapter 7, verse 2. The, glory of, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Before Abram lived in Haran, God spoke to him, told him to get out of Ur, told him to leave all of his kindred, and here we are in Haran, and he hasn't left his kindred. In fact, Genesis 11:31 is very clear. Terah took Abram and his son Lot, etc. Abram is not someone who's really listened all that quickly to the voice of God. Abram didn't initiate. Terah relocated the family. Abram did not start out on some vision-based pilgrimage. He went along with the family decision. Abram didn't separate his, from his father until his father died. Actually, Terah separates from Abram. Now, yes, it's true. Abram did obey God and left Haran, but chapter 12, verse 4 tells us that he was 75 years old at the time. 75 years old, and he's now taking these first early steps of faith. He does believe. He does obey. He gets off to a really slow start. His age actually raises another problem with choosing Abram. 
He has no children. Sarah is barren, and both of them are old. Now, that's not just a problem for them as a family. It's actually a problem for God's plans of restoration. Again, if you're reading through the first several chapters of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15, God promises that a descendant of Adam and Eve will be the one to crush evil, that God is going to work through the human race to bring his Redeemer to free this world. Well, that only works if there is a line of descent for this person to come from. And that's not looking very positive at this point in time. There's some genealogies in chapter 5, chapter 10, chapter 11. As you tease through them, it starts to narrow more and more to, until you don't get to this person, Terah. And then you look and say, okay, Terah's got three sons. Okay, we've got three options. This doesn't look that bad anymore. Until you read chapter 11, 28, that one of those sons, Haran, dies in Ur. He fathers Lot, who we later learn only has two daughters, and you realize the line of descent is not going to come through him. Now you're down to two options. Nahor stays behind in Ur among the idolaters. Now you're down to one option. So if this one option, Abram's wife Sarai, is barren, then the line of humanity that God has chosen to work through is sputtering out. There are no more options. Take all of that and put it together. Ask yourself, who does God choose to carry on his redemptive work of restoring humanity. He entrusts this work to an old man from a pagan background who's slow to faith, the last in his family line, married to a barren lady named after the moon god's consort. And right now you ought to be encouraged and excited beyond belief. I am. Why? God knows how to work with people. God knows how to relate to people who come from messed up, faithless backgrounds. Backgrounds that have taught you to believe things about God, to believe things about the world that just aren't true. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you could put labels onto those backgrounds in your own lives. Maybe you've come from a legalistic background and you've been taught to believe that God is only good to you when you are good to him. If that's true of you, Here's the good news. God knows how to relate to you to get you past that so that you can actually meet with him. Or maybe you're like the person that I was meeting with earlier this week, comes from more of a karmic background. Maybe you believe that every time something good happens to you, there needs to be something bad that's just around the corner in order to balance that out. And whenever you think like that, it messes with your whole understanding of who God is and how he engages you. Here's the good news. God knows how to relate to you. And he knows how to work in your life to get you past that so that you can actually engage with him. Or more, maybe you come from more of a secular version of life where you've been taught to believe that if there is a God, if there isn't a God, it doesn't really matter because you get out of life what you put into life. If that's where you come from, there's good news for you. God knows how to relate to you to get you past that so that you can actually meet with him. Maybe you're just unsure that you do believe or you're unsure of what you believe. That's not going to keep God from working in your life. Maybe you're slow to embrace God and trust him. You, you've been burned by people before. You've been burned by religion. Or maybe you just think, I, I don't know how to trust him. I don't actually know what this looks like. None of that will make God think that you are too much to work with. God will not look at you and say, you are too high maintenance. I don't have time for this. 
Instead, you have to realize that what is most important in your relationship with God, most important in your experience with him, is not your background. What's most important is God's involvement in your life. And Abram's life helps you realize just how big a deal God's involvement is, that it overrides all those other considerations. Just think a moment. Why are you here right now? It's because several thousand years ago, God entered into a world of pagan idolatry where the knowledge of him had almost dwindled down to nothing. And God reached into that world and pulled a man up out of it to himself. And he did that despite the man's background, despite the influence of his family's faith on him, despite the impact of his society on him. Yes, Abram had faith, but he only had that after God revealed himself to Abram and obligated himself to him. God will do that for every single one of us in this room. God will do that for every single person who wants him. Your background will not stop him from working in your life. Now, what is it then that God actually wants to do in your life? God comes to this twisted mess of Abram's life, and he says to him, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God calls him from something bad in order to give him something good, and what he's giving him is the blessing of creation again. He says to him, I will make of you a great nation. I will cause you to be fruitful. I will cause you to multiply. I will cause you to fill this earth. And I'm going to give you land so that when I make you this great nation, they'll have a place to actually be. And what are we going to see now as we watch what's happening in that nation on that land? We're going to watch them interacting with each other in ways that are restored. We're going to start to see a visible picture of what it's like to be in relationship with God again. In other words, God takes the burden on himself of making himself known in this earth. He gives us the glory of actually learning how to live that out with each other. But it's all from him. So ask yourself, do you have a sense this morning of this God moving toward you? Moving toward you despite your past failures or maybe even despite your present failures? Do you have a sense of him nudging you in a certain direction? Making you uncomfortable with where you are or, or the kinds of things that you're doing? Or maybe there's, there's just a growing desire inside of you for something more, a growing discontent, a sense that, 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 that there's more. Talk to a couple guys this summer already from Renewal where, who have said, God's doing something. I want something else and, and not really sure what that is. What do you do with all of that? You encourage it. You recognize this is the spirit of God alive inside of me doing something. And you ask yourself, what's the next step? Yes, it'll take faith to take that next step. It will not take more faith than Abram had to have as he packed everything up from his family and headed out on a road and didn't know where he was going. But if that's what God is doing in you and nudging you to take another step, don't let yourself think too small. Don't let yourself think that God is doing that because he want to, wants to make one person's life better. It's not the case with Abram. It's not the case with any of those of, who are related to him by faith. See, when God speaks to him, you learn that God is not content to just carve out this little piece of real estate and have a boundaried group of people interacting there. 
Instead, he ends verse 2 by saying to Abraham, I'm going to do all of this so that you'll be a blessing. So that verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's not content with one person. He has much bigger plans, much bigger agenda. God wants the world. He wants to bless Abram so that every family on the earth is blessed. Every family can then start to take their place in the creation that he made for them. God wants to bless the nations. He wants to bless those nations that lined up against him at the Tower of Babel. He wants to bless the nations that decided to worship the moon. He wants to reach into this world and bless the nations so that they multiply, so that they fill the earth, and so that the glory of God is made known to everyone. In other words, what do you see here? You see that God's goal is outward. God's goal is not inward. And the longer that you meditate on chapters 3 through 11, the more that you realize that inward is actually what creates all that ruin and misery. What's an inward movement? It's that desire to conserve what I have for myself, where I think that everything, ought, all roads ought to lead to me. Sometimes it's driven by greediness, a, a sense that I've got mine, I'm hanging on to mine, and I want more so that, I can, it be, so that it can be mine. Sometimes it's just uh, out of a sense of poverty, out of a sense of fear. I don't know that I'm going to have enough. I'm afraid I'm going to run out. And so you conserve, you move inward. And into that incredibly self-absorbed world of chapters 3 to 11, God steps in and he says, I'm going to bless you. Not so that you can hoard the blessing. I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. I'm going to bless you so that you can actually join me in what I'm doing. I want to bless the nations. I want to give you everything that you need so that you can then bless the nations. Now, yeah, Abram has a special blessing. It's through him and his descendants that the Messiah would come to bless the nations. That Messiah has now come. Jesus has now come. And yet the church continues to be here, and it continues to be here to bless the nations. You notice here, it doesn't bless the nations by joining them, by becoming like them. Verse 8, Abram doesn't go and move into Bethel or move into Ai. He does what? He camps out in between them. He pitches his tent in between and he's close enough that the nations are able to see what's happening now in this person's life. And, and they have a chance to see what a restored life with God is like. But they also have the opportunity to see what the source of that restoration is. Because as soon as Abram gets into the land of Cain and God appears to him, and he says to your offspring, I'll give this land. And immediately Abram builds an altar there. He moves in verse 8 to another place, pitches his tent there, and builds another altar. And he's understood that worship is not relegated to a small portion of your life. It's part of everything that you do. It's part of all that you are. And so you don't simply worship in private. You don't worship in the confines of your own home or, or in your own mind. But there's an element of worship that's public, that's something that everybody else can see. It's an opportunity for other people to see what they're missing and an opportunity for you to redirect them and say, here's the God, here's his purposes. He's restoring what was lost to us. But why an altar? Why doesn't Abram just simply pray? 
Why does any old a worship service and invite the two towns in? Why an altar? Well, clearly you don't need an altar to encounter God. God's already appeared to Abraham, Abram. You don't need an altar to encounter God, but you do need an altar to survive the encounter. See, Abram understood something that modern people don't. Abram's world, pagan as it was, understood something that you and I don't. You can't just waltz into God's presence without some kind of mediating thing there for you, something that will remove the offensiveness of your sin before God's holiness removes you. Modern people don't understand that. We talk way too glibly about how we want to have spiritual experiences, and we forget, forget that to meet the holy God is beyond terrifying. We forget that the apostle John hung out with Jesus for about three years, that he was so close that he could lean up against Jesus while they were eating. We forget that this one who was on the inner circle, when he sees the risen Lord in all of his glory in heaven, faints. We forget that God says to Moses, you can see my backside, you cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live. We forget that Isaiah, the prophet, who actually spoke the words of God, saw God, and in that moment declared himself to be ruined, destroyed, because he realized in that moment how unholy he was. And the only reason that he could stay in the presence of God is because there was something else in that room between God and him, and it was an altar. And on that altar was a sacrifice that God applied to him. You can't survive an encounter with God, not even if God wants that encounter, unless something mediates for your failings, for the times when you've turned from God, for the times when you've trusted in other things, for in the times when you've tried to take God's blessing and turn it to yourself rather than be someone who wants to give it to others. And that's why Jesus would come over 2,000 years after this time, literally walking in the footsteps of Abram. Jesus would go from his own country, and he would leave his kindred, and he would leave his father's house to come to a place where there wasn't a whole lot of faith. And he would live this nomadic life without a permanent home, worshiping everywhere he went so that everyone could see what it looked like to actually have a real relationship with God and to have this creation blessing. Jesus had no need of an altar, didn't need anything to intercede between him and God. He could see the face of God and live. And yet Jesus built an altar anyway. It was the cross. And on that altar, he sacrificed himself, not because he needed that, but he did it to be a blessing to the nations to restore humanity to the place that we were supposed to have, to restore you to the place that you were supposed to have, so that you could this morning be blessed by this God, and so that you could take that blessing and turn it out to the people around you. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I have to confess that there are way too many times where I have absorbed your blessing, that I have not thought about your larger purposes. I've just been clueless to those. Lord, I don't think I'm the only one in this room like that. 
Lord, I pray that you would raise our eyes up off of what captures us and that we would see what you're doing. And then, Lord, that you would move us to actually want to be part of what you're doing. Lord, come now. Fill this place with yourself. Transform us. Make clear to us what those next steps of faith are for us. Give us courage, confidence that you'll walk those with us. Do that, Lord, to make your glory known across this planet. In Jesus' name. Let's rise together uh, in response to what we just heard, and um, maybe before we even get into this um, song, uh, we can just take a moment to reflect on this truth that, um, you know, God came to us, you know, maybe we think that we're too weak we're too inadequate you know just like Abraham just like we heard 